with the saints. We will tell our story, and uh, we get to tell it here on earth, and we'll be saying it for all of eternity and pointing to the name that's above all names. Thank you for leading us, worship team. If you open to Acts chapter 2, we're going to um, talk about something that has corporate implications for us, and so it's going to be, I think God's got a word for us, and so, but before we make any venture into anything, let's ask God to teach us. Lord, I recognize this morning it matters very little um, what I would necessarily have to say, but everything is about what you need to say and what you want to say. So Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit has for us. Remove our mind from the distractions and maybe the agitation in our spirit, whatever it would be, God, that is hindering us from hearing your voice this morning, please remove it all. So that with one heart and one mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Sometimes, I don't know if you've, you've gone to places to eat, and we don't know what's behind them places necessarily. Uh, we just go and order food, and as far as what the, the business or that company is all about, sometimes we just don't know. Um, take Taco John's, for example. Any Taco John fans in the house? Yeah, all right. You're liking that, huh? Well, maybe you didn't know when you went to Taco John's that behind that is a vision this company has, a, a desire they have, a focus they want everyone who works at, Saint, at the Taco John's to have. They want the, the cooks. They want the, the servers. Uh, they want everybody involved. The lady at the guy at the window taking orders. They want them all going in the same direction. And here's what Taco John's motto is. Taco John's promise that Taco John's will always serve you a generous portion of high-quality, fresh-tasting Mexican food for a fair price. Every menu item will be carefully prepared using the best ingredients to give you a bold taste with West Mex flavor and attitude. Our service will be efficient and friendly. Now, restaurants will be clean and pleasant. Your satisfaction means everything to us. I thought, what if, what if Elam borrowed it but rewrote it a little? So here's Elam's take on it. At Elam Mission, our promises will always serve generous portions of truth, fresh and relevant for free. Every ministry will be carefully prepared using best ingredients of prayer, God's word, and love. Our service will be caring, and we'll do all we can to maintain a positive family atmosphere. His glory, our growth in Christ, mean everything to us. I like ours better. I like that's good stuff. And so I don't necessarily like borrowing from business um, principles, but uh, we'll borrow their little slogan a little bit. Um, but it does say a lot about Taco John's, what they're about, what, what they want their energies to move towards, because there's a lot of different things that business and other companies can do. But when it comes to the church, what are we supposed to be about? Well, the early church is a perfect model. I want to read a few verses out of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. But to kind of lead up to that, we need to understand something. This, uh, this Peter, who's denied Jesus three times before his death, encountered, experienced the resurrected Christ, alive, conquered the grave, Peter all of a sudden had this holy boldness. 
And we, we read his sermon in Acts chapter 2. And this is a pretty good sermon when thousands come to faith. That's pretty good stuff. What did he share? The good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. Christ's death, his resurrection, which conquered sin, paid for sin, and conquered death. And he preached that. He also took them back through the Old Testament. And his, his hearers, many of them would have understood this promise was made in centuries past. And Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of it. Thousands come to Christ. And so what do you do with thousands of new believers? Some cases from different backgrounds. And what do you do with them? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You steer them all in the same direction. Let's look what happened. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed worked together. They had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and all were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's explosive growth going on. Let me ask you a question maybe to consider, and we'll tie it back into this. How would you describe your family? I mean, what makes your family unique? What makes your family your family? Think about that for a minute. What are some things that come to your mind? And, and, and as, as you ponder that question for a moment, then ask, answer this one. What makes Elam Elam? What makes this church uniquely this church? We're not called to be Saddleback. We're not called to be other churches. We're called to be who God wants us to be here at Elam. How would you answer that one? And the answers reveal something called values. It's what you value. You could say core values. Values answer an important question, who are we? Kind of like I said, it's like the marketplace question. You walk in the marketplace, someone says, tell me about Elam. Your answers would reveal values. Values are significant. We've sought at Elam to identify our core values. You have access to them on the Internet, and um, I believe there's still some in the foyer. Um, Dan and I kind of looked at them four, or the core values, a list of them, and said, how could we, how, how could we reduce it maybe to four? And so Dan and I did the best we could, and we came to word, God's word, prayer, worship, and love. Love for the lost, love for the found. <laughs> God's word, prayer, worship, and love. I hope that describes your family at home. I certainly hope it describes Elam as well. Values, they, they describe who we are, and the significance of values, identifying them, is that when they're guarded, when values are cherished, when they're lived out in our lives and ministries, they become agents of change. And they guard against drift that take us away from who and what we're called to be and do. One of the expressions I use sometimes with my kids is, you're better than this. And, it, and kind of the implication is that's not really who you are, so your behavior is kind of, kind of deviating from who you want to be. You're better than that. And... 
values guard us from drifting away from what really matters. Because it's not, unfortunately, you see churches that have drifted from God's word, have drifted from prayer. When worship kind of gets shoved aside, we've, we've unfortunately seen churches like that. Churches that maybe would see themselves as nice, but when push came to shove, there wasn't a lot of love. You see, if we don't operate and embrace those values that God would have us, we can drift. Let me give you a matter of fact, God gives us an example in Acts chapter 6. Now with this explosive growth, there were a group of widows that were getting overlooked. The apostles are, imagine again, thousands of people. It's not hard to see that that could happen. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Acts. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were getting overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve the tables, but select from among your brethren seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may, we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, um, Prochorius, and Nicanor, and Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And so we see what happens is this complaint arises, and it, it's, a, it's a legitimate complaint. The, the apostles affirm it. But notice what they did. We cannot neglect the preaching of the word. It was a value. It was a value that drove them. They guarded it because they knew that that value kept them right in the middle, right in the flow of where God wanted them to be. Core values are significant. Without well-defined values, we're less likely to organize our lives and our ministries in ways that are consistent with God's call. It's because many have not defined what is core about their call, they risk drifting from it, and they allow the less important and the trivial to define our lives. I guess you could say values bring alignment, and they rule out certain options. They facilitate health. They become intentional, commitments by which congregations and people live by. Right now, uh, many of you know we're in the process of pursuing a new facility, and um, Jake and uh, his gang presented to the elders a, about a month ago um, kind of the preliminary design or footprint, you could say, of the facility. And what just got my heart going was that this blueprint, this footprint, was value-driven. It wasn't just, hey, let's just draw a building. It was core value-driven. That when you looked at this facility, you could say, oh, that's what this church is about. That's where this church is going. That's exciting to me. Because it protects us from going and drifting in directions that God might not want us to go. Values are significant. They're so important. Values answer the question, who? What about what? Okay, that's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to value God's word, prayer, worship, love, relationships, which love speaks to. We're supposed to value those things, and when we do, they guard us. And, and, and so that's, in a sense, who we are, but, but what are we supposed to be doing? That's a mission question. In the New Testament, there's five commissions given. 
One in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, one in John, and one in Acts. Four of them, the ones in Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, refer specifically to the proclamation of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is death, his resurrection, and that by faith in Christ alone, you can have salvation. But Matthew, the commission there, it introduces a term not used in the other four. So why don't you turn to Matthew 28. Let's get introduced to this term. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This term introduced is translated for you and I, make disciples. You see, after Jesus rose from the dead before his ascension, he called, he scheduled a meeting. This appears to be the only scheduled meeting after his resurrection before his ascension. Well, three groups get invited to this meeting. We know from the context in verse 16, verse, but the 11 disciples proceed to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Jesus said, hey, go here, we're going to have a meeting. So the 11 go. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us there were 500 brethren there. And then if you look at the end of verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The end of the age hasn't happened yet, which means we're also invited to the meeting. So let's go to the meeting and, and see what Jesus calls us to. The first thing Jesus wants to make abundantly clear is all authority has been given to him. He calls the shots. We don't determine the mission, we discover it. He has all authority. He's in charge. He's in charge in heaven. He's in charge here on earth. All authority is his. It means his people are to consistently make decisions, plans under his rule, the rule of Christ, which we operate as a disciple, as a follower. We don't decide the ministry. We discover, we carry out what has been declared to us by the head of the church. And Jesus' commission needs to be this compelling compassion of his called out ones, his church. Because really, when you think about it, mission drives everything. Jesus certainly modeled it. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He spoke about his mission. If you look at his life, you see and lived out very clearly. He was seeking and seeking to save the lost. Be Jesus a perfect model for us. His mission was his passion. In a live church is a church on a mission which aligns with the Great Commission. Seeking out sinners. Helping them and teaching them to identify with Christ. Moving them on in their faith so there's a consistent pattern of growth towards maturity in every believer. But to me, the real calamity of the church occurs when it becomes full of nice people on a nice, nice street in a nice part of town who are really comfortable to be just that. It's one of our great enemies is this complacency. But we're called to a mission above all else. That's why the church has been left here, to carry out Christ's mission. Consider a couple things. One, one the name of our church, Elam, mission. I mean, just the name of our church speaks that we're supposed to be on a mission. 
We're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. The word evangelical means herald of good news, deliverer of good news, i.e., it's our mission. And so even the name of our church and our affiliation with our church speaks and emphasizes our mission. It's what we're called to do. If you ask a person at a church, the average person, what they do, what do you do at that church? You might have some answers like, well, I teach a class, um, I work with the youth, maybe I mentor women, maybe I help in the nursery. But a person on a mission has a different answer. They say, I'm changing the course of a life so that they can do great things for God. They say, I'm working with teenagers so I can pour into them so they can see the reality of Christ in their life and live and do great things for God. That's what I do. One's duty-driven. i got to show up at youth group. i got to teach a class. The other's mission-driven. I'm not just about showing up. I'm not just about uh, dispensing information. I'm about investing into a life that's going to go do great things for God. That's mission-driven. That's what we're called to. Are you mission-driven or are you duty-driven? I promise to continue to help steer our staff, all our councils, all our leaders to be mission-driven because that's what we're supposed to be doing. How do we do it? Now, there's a question. Okay, it's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to embrace these values. Okay, this is what we're supposed to be doing. How do we do it? Well, a couple of verses speak of this kind of get us launching in this discussion a little bit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 through 29. Paul to this church writes, We proclaim him, that'd be Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And if you go to chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, he says this, And as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. It's in making disciples back in Matthew 28. Each of these verses and the Great Commission speak to this idea of a process. You see, when you and I came to faith in Christ, we just didn't get a ticket out of hell. God made us part of something far greater than ourselves called the church. The church is made up of redeemed people who don't have it all together. We're all in a process of being conformed into the image of Christ. And we'll ever be growing on our time here on earth. But make no mistake, we're to be ever growing, ever maturing. And so this introduces this concept the Bible calls being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And if I could define discipleship I'd, in a personal sense, I'd define it, discipleship is the growth process by which we as Christians seek to bring all of life under the lordship of Christ. I want to say it again because it's an important definition. Discipleship is the growth process by which we as Christians seek to bring all of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. At the core, discipleship is becoming more like the one we follow our Savior. But there is a corporate aspect to this. In other words, the church is to be about making disciples, and so I would define maybe the corporate aspect of discipleship this. It's the developmental process of the local church 
by which Christians are brought from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so they can reproduce this process with others. The disciple-making church is the normal church. A normal church is those who, are, who come from spiritual infancy, for those who become born again by faith in Jesus Christ alone and who begin that process of growing towards spiritual maturity. But the church is God's environment for that to happen. I always equate sometimes the church like an incubator. If you put chicks in an incubator, that's the environment in which they grow. God has designed it that the environment of the church is the environment in which we grow in our faith. Those who say, I don't need the church, don't understand what the head of the church has designed. And that is, that's the atmosphere, the environment in which we grow. Currently, the elders, Dan and I, are working on a disciple-making pathway and process. It's our desire as leaders to clarify what this process would look like, to keep it simple so it's not just something on paper, but it's a reality taking place in the life of the disciples here. It's an exciting process to see where God's going to lead us. But to have a maximum impact, to best utilize our resources, requires us to have a simple process that's spirit-led and mission-driven, which will always lead the church to mission that God has called us to. And with the complexity in our culture, it seems to me that a simplicity of a focus and process is really what brings growth. It's, the church doesn't need to become more comp complex. It becomes to be more simplified in making disciples. A Barna, George Barna Navigator study, recently, I'm done within the last couple of years, revealed this. Now, when I hear surveys, sometimes I know sometimes there might be a little off kilter. And so, but even if this is close, it's scary. Two in ten Christians are involved in some sort of discipleship activity. I.e., eight of ten aren't. What are those disciple-making activities? Small group, mentor, a book discussion, a Sunday school. Only two in ten, from what they're telling us, are involved. Why? Because there's an inattention to spiritual growth and spiritual health. But there's an acceptance of complacency, which stands as an obstacle to discipleship and disciple-making. Our values guide us to growth. The values give, guide us in discipleship. God's word, God's prayer, God's people are all values that tell us and model for us and drive us to the fact that they are crucial for discipleship. And as we interact with these values, they bring growth in our life. And sometimes I guess if I had to break it down and say, what is essential for every Christian to grow? Every Christian, no matter what culture, no matter what place, no matter what age, what is it that every Christian needs? This is a tough thing. What if you had to boil it down? I got three things. The Word of God, the people of God, and the Spirit of God. You got those three? You got some ingredients called growth. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. We all need those for growth. Every single person here. Don't tell yourself you don't. You do need the people of God. It's the environment. It's the atmosphere. You certainly need the word of God. In a, in a, in a culture of moral relativism, we need God's truth more than ever, the objective truth which never changes. And we need the spirit of God. 
who brings change within us and helps us to actually even understand God's word and understand the times we live. We need all of those things. There's some disciple-making efforts that always need to be constant. The foundations of spiritual disciplines, the foundation of biblical truth and doctrine, the intentional pursuit of lost people always need to be a part of who we are as a church. There's extensive studies that have been done that say vibrant churches have a quality of a simple process that move people onto maturity. And think about it, it must, because we're all at different places in our lives. We'll all be making next steps in our growth. And we need to be relentless in calling each of us to greater growth. And that process needs to be simple enough to embrace everybody within it. And so a huge part of disciple-making is an intentionality of, of getting people in God's Word, helping them function and serve within the people of God, and calling them prayerfully surrendering to the Spirit of God in our lives. Many studies would emphasize that really a huge part of spiritual growth is our serving. It's our, it's our speaking to other people's lives. We, we not only help them grow, but we help us grow. We have currently um, a really neat ministry taking place, and it's kind of neat to see some of them out here right now. Um, our middle school ministry, our 7th and 8th graders, uh, God's raised up a team this year, and they're kind of starting to explode, not only numbers, but in real depth of relationship. Jesse Jarman, Logan LaBelle, Britta Swenson, and Ellen Gosswiller, Rachel and Dan Smock, all have said, you know what? We want to love on these kids. We want to pour into them. It's having a huge difference under Dan's oversight. What a blessing to see that. And it's happening in so many other ways, women mentoring women, and adults meeting one-on-one, accountability relationships, where people are pouring in each other's life and helping each other grow in this process called discipleship. Everyone here will challenge to be a part of that process of growth. And the neat thing is discipleship is so big that when we're faithful, the church will impact the world. It's the picture in Scripture. It's the promise that as you and I go forth, being obedient to what God's called us to be, that we'll have an impact. Okay, so we've answered some questions. Who are we? Core values. They tell us who we are. We've answered a question, what? What are we supposed to be doing? Why did God leave us here on earth? We've answered an important question, how? Of stepping into this process of discipleship and committing to growth. Exposing ourselves to the word of God among the people of God as we surrender to the spirit of God. But there's another question. It's one that often we don't ask, where? Where are we going? It's called vision. If you read just a quick overview of scripture, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, Nehemiah, Paul, all had great vision. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate visionary. And vision is so essential because we live in a negative world that says anything in the future can't be done. We live in a fearful world that's afraid to walk in faith, only sight. We live in a complacent world that plan and plot themselves into mediocrity. They're content as things are. It seems followers of Jesus We're to live by faith, with eyes on the future. And when we live with a God-directed vision, there's no room to be frightened. There's no reason for intimidation. 
Just read uh, as Joshua and Caleb led the Israelites into the promised land, we see a great picture of that. Courageous vision in my book is the ability to see God's presence, to perceive God's power, to focus on God's plan in any situation, even when there's obstacles. Courageous vision is the ability to see God's presence, to perceive God's power, focus on God's plan in any given situation. The significance of vision is that it allows us to live eyes wide open, sensing where the Spirit of God is and where he's leading. It has a personal dynamic and certainly a corporate one. Consider these maybe encouragements as to how you and I can look forward. How do we live with vision? One is look around you. What concerns you? What, what uniquely pricks your heart? Look around you. That, that will help define a little bit, but that's not enough. Look within you. What has God given you a passion for? One of those individuals I mentioned who works with the middle school never envisioned, she told me, she'd ever work with middle school kids. Never envisioned it. And all of a sudden, God led her into it. And she's having an incredible impact. She took a step of faith. She took a risk. And God tapped into a passion that was there. That's cool to me. Love to watch that. So look within you. Look above you. Where is God leading you like this, like this woman did with the middle school? Where is God leading you? And maybe it doesn't make sense. Those who've ever adopted, I'm sure, have always sat back and said, I don't know if this really makes sense of why we would do this. But God led the people there. Look beside you. What are your resources? What has God entrusted you to coming on the heels of stewardship? Look beside you. Look beyond you in faith. What if God had his way with you? What could God do? If you just laid it all at his feet and just invested all that he's led you to do, that you followed that passion, what could he do? Look beyond you. Don't forget that part. A corporate vision has factors. As we consider corporately where to go, we need to look at the community in which we live, the gifts God's given to the body, what resources are available, what opportunities are available, what convictions has God laid on our heart, what is his leading, what about the next generation? All of that's to be considered if we're to live and serve with vision. Vital signs, another study I came across pointed out some vital signs of a healthy church. One of them is a proactive, future-oriented posture. Churches that are vibrant live and serve with vision. They're proactive. They don't, they don't kind of wait for something to happen. They kind of sense where the Spirit's leading and they, and they go. They, they just, they move forward, the vision. Interesting enough, in the same study, there's another sign of a vital, healthy church. They have adequate room to expand facilities. <laughs> just smile, just so you know who's in there. Um, so I think we're taking some good steps. I read through Elam's vision this week. A couple things, if I could kind of sum up a couple things of it. One of the, several of the statements in there, if I accumulate, they put them together, says, our vision is to be a contagious, compassionate, intentional impact in our communities. We want to be contagious, like a virus in a good way. Contagious, compassionate, to be intentional bridge into our community. 
We want to have a generational impact. We want to impact lives for generations to come, and we want to serve with that in mind. There's times I'll sit at elder meetings, and, and my mind will kind of will go to, I wonder what the elders 20 years from now will be discussing. And what we decide now is going to impact their discussion 20 years down the road. We need to live with vision. We need to serve with vision. Also, a huge part of our vision is an intentional discipleship focus that results in the multiplication of disciples. We want to multiply disciples who will multiply disciples who will multiply disciples. So as you vest in a life, you have spiritual children, spiritual grandchildren, spiritual great-grandchildren, on and on and on, because you're investing your life in people, helping them follow Jesus. You see, if there's no vision, we're left and content with the mediocre. We'll have little or no impact. And those without vision are left to their own perspective. Their obstacles become bigger, their God becomes littler. Vision is crucial. Those persons in churches who live and plan with vision, they expect to see God work. They live a life of expectancy. They can't wait to get up the next day. Can't wait to see what God's going to do today. This is going to be good. I get a front row seat. There's an enthusiasm in their life because of that. They're enthusiastic about what God's doing. I kind of get sick of all the critics of the church. I mean, what if we just trumpeted what God is doing? What if we trumpeted about the marvelous workings of God? Think of all the, the critical things people say compared to all the times they affirm what God's doing. I think you'd have to agree with me. We hear the critical more than we hear the testimony of his power. What's happened to us? No wonder people are skeptical about the church. I don't want to trumpet what's wrong. Of course we're not perfect. I do want to trumpet what our king is doing because to him belongs all the praise and all the glory and honor. If I knew a more significant way to invest my life in eternity, I'd do it. I don't. I realize that God has graced me to be a part of his church, his instrument, his tool to reach this world. So I make no apologies for challenging each of us to move together into all that God has for us. And i got to be honest, I ask you to hear me. I don't think you're here by accident. I don't believe in accidents. I believe the course of your life, life has led you to a point that you'd be saved and growing and enough of a follower of Jesus Christ to be here saying, I want to be a part of something bigger than me. I want to be a part of something God's doing. And I believe there, you're here with an expectant heart, committed to move. Yet I also know that there's some who are hesitant for a myriad of reasons. You're hesitant to plug into a disciple-making opportunities, to relationships. Maybe you're hesitant to fully commit to a community at Elam. And I call you to take a step forward together. I want us each to be assured what God is doing and will do in us and through us. And I want us to be assured that what God is doing will outlast our careers, will outlast our hobbies, will outlast our life. It will outlast everything we do. It's what he does that really matters. And he's called us as a community of believers, as his church, here at Elam, to move together. So how do you see yourself? 
You see yourself moving with the community around the outside on the fringes, tipping your toe in the water a little, but just not ready to commit. Maybe you've never truly committed to a community of believers. This is new to you. You've never said, you know what, I've never really been a part of a group of believers that are really moving towards a mission and living with vision. Let this be your clarion call. I call us all as believers to move together, and I call us to nothing less. Let's be a church committed, moving together, growing, serving aligned with values, driven by a mission, engaged in discipleship, and compelled to live with vision for a future impact for the kingdom of God. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we could ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church this day and forever. And the people of God said, yes, we do. Amen.